I have to say, just in, uh, in, in starting here this morning, um, many of you know, but some of you don't, uh, I was, got to be a pastor over on Woodby Island for 26 years, and, and I was also the worship leader. So every Sunday I would do all the music and then preach too, and, and that's because I love music. I love playing my guitar and singing and, and listening to people, but the crazy thing about it is when you're leading, you don't really get to stop and listen you're, you're singing and leading people, and, and I just, I, man, I just blesses my heart to not sing and listen to you sing to the Lord this morning. And um, I, I want to say with that how much I appreciate you, Josh, and, and just your ministry there. Uh, many times I've been there where, let's see, where's this song going? But, uh, um, you know, in the, during the Reformation and during times of uh, revival in the church through the centuries, the, it was said that the Christians would bring their Bible and their hymn book. They always, everywhere they went, they had, they had two books with them, their Bible and their hymn book. Because the church has always been a, a people that, that sang to God, that, that knew that, you know, it's one thing to come to a, a group of people and, and listen to what some guy, some pastor, some person that God is, is tasked with preaching the word, but it's, it's another thing that, that you do when you sing together to the Lord that is it's such an incredible and important part of your faith, of your, of your Christian experience. And it's, it's become even more obvious to me in the last few years when, when people said, oh, you can't sing in church. And I was like, okay. That lasted for a few weeks and it's like, no. No, that's what we do. And if we can't do that, it's like, it's like stopping breathing. We have to. We were meant to lift our voices to, to the Lord. And, and in that, uh, join our voices in harmony and unity, uh, singing to God. And, and the Bible, I, I tell, maybe I've said this many times, maybe you've heard me say it, but God put a hymnal right in the middle of the scriptures, the psalms that we're going to look at this morning uh, begin the series of have that little title at the beginning, and it's not a, something that some editor put in. They're ancient superscriptions at the beginning of the psalms, and these say, for the director of music. They were intended for God's people to sing, to lift their voices together, and these are written you know, thousands of years ago, and the church has been singing to God, recognizing the importance, the value of lifting our voices to him together. And so I just uh, want to say I was, I was blessed today, how important it is. The thing I want you to think about, too, is so many of the prophets, if you actually read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they're full of poetry. And I wonder, you know, in our age, many Christians today get their theology from the songs they listen to. And there's some good songs out there, and there's some really questionable ones. And I, I always want to make sure that I, I measure the songs that I, that I listen to, that I sing by, by the scriptures. That I, that I recognize whether or not a song is, is scriptural or if it's just fluff. And it's so important that we, um, that we understand that... Uh, not only is singing important in our Christian experience, but it's, it's how we learn, it's how we express truths that are, that are deep in our souls, and music is so important to us. And boy, when we get to heaven, and there's a lot more than just eight notes in an in a, in a, uh, octave, when there's 
notes that we've never even imagined before, and we lift our voices and sing to the Lamb. What a, what a glory that will be. I was here, you know, a couple months ago, for some of you maybe remember, but uh, I started looking at some of the Psalms in the, in the middle of the book of Psalms, and I want to visit a couple more of them today. And the thing was that I haven't been preaching much lately, so I'm maybe out of practice, but that's all right. It's just the Word of God is where the power is. And, and uh, when I was 62 years old, I told you this, I, I said to myself, I'm going to memorize Psalm 62 this year in honor of turning 62 years old. And then I, when I turned 63, I memorized Psalm 63. And when I turned 64, how many years ago? Six years ago, I measured, I memorized Psalm 64. And so this morning we're going to look at Psalm 64. And next week we're going to look at Psalm 65. I've spent... You know, it's just one year, one psalm. I spent a lot of time thinking about these things, meditating on the Word of God uh, in the middle of the night, waking up and going, uh, my soul finds rest in God alone, Psalm 62, or Psalm 63, praying in, in the darkness or driving in the car and saying, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. Psalm 64 begins, Hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. It's a song that addresses something pretty common to the human experience. I don't know if you have ever complained. That's like Captain Obvious. We all have this sense that things are not what they should be, and sometimes it's our fault, and sometimes it's somebody else's. And the tendency to, uh, to cry out and say, well, this isn't right, and, and, and how, we, how we handle things that we're not satisfied with. We have, uh, next, next Sunday we're going to look at Psalm 65, which is really interesting at this period right before Thanksgiving season. Um, complaining seems to be the opposite of Thanksgiving, isn't it? But next Sunday, Psalm 65 is really a, a harvest song of thanksgiving. So we're going to look at that next week. But this week, hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. And I know that different translations express that a little differently. But that word there, prayer, is not just the typical one. It actually has that sense of dissatisfaction and, uh, and questioning. And uh, so we're going to look at Psalm 64 this morning. And we had a... We had a you know, we raised three daughters, and they never complained about anything. <laughs> so we have, uh, we have a sign that's migrated out to our garage now, but it says, thou shalt not whine. It was one of our rules, not often followed. Uh, my wife has this uh, sticker on the back of her car that has got a lot of traction. It's really funny. People have driven by, stopped, backed up, and taken a picture of her little sticker, and it's, it looks like it, it should say one thing, but it doesn't. It says, stop global whining. <laughs> and, and people look at it, and they double take, because they think it should say stop global warming, but it says stop global whining. It's really funny, the conversations that that has sparked. Um, yeah, I think complaining, being dissatisfied is something that's very common to the Christian experience, especially in a culture where we have so much to be thankful for and, and so much abundance, and yet how, how is it that so many times we are dissatisfied or, or um, cry out our frustrations? Some complaints are valid. 
Sometimes it's, it's right that we should recognize that things are wrong. And, and uh, I think it's important that we understand complaining in the right light. Think of Israel. Um, I've heard this all my life, and, and uh, I'm sure you have too. What is it with the children of Israel in the wilderness that, that um, God, why did you bring us out here in the desert to die? And he said, well, here, let me open the ocean for you so you can walk through on dry land, and I will destroy your enemies in the process. God, we have no water. We're dying of thirst here. I said, well, okay, Moses, go strike the rock, and I will pour out water in abundance to feed, you know, several million people. Uh, God, we, we don't have any food. And the Bible says, men eat the bread of angels. And yet they were dissatisfied, and they said, we have nothing to eat but this miserable <laughs> bread of angels. Wow. The, the tragic thing about that is, and, and we see this, is that, yes, they complained, and they were, uh, it seems like they were quick to complain. And uh, we want to complain about their whiningness, and yet we, we fail to see that, yeah, that's often me. And, uh, and, and the truth is that many of them died because they complained. God judged them fairly quickly at times. They, they said, we have no meat, and he, he sent down you know, quail around, and they picked up till they ate it and, and died from overeating, I guess. Um, they complained about Moses' leadership, and the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and Dathan and Abiram, their, their followers. So complaining is something we ought to take seriously and maybe ask ourselves when it's valid and when it's not. There are several people that we're going to look at this morning who complained in scriptures, who are famous for their complaints. I think uh, of Job primarily. And uh, he had some things that he was, you know, questioned God about. We're going to look at Jeremiah a little bit. He had a couple very specific complaints to God. But we're going to start here in Psalm 64 uh, with David and his complaint. And again, as I said, I've, I've memorized this psalm. And, and uh, I just point out as we begin that the, there's two parts to this psalm. The first part is, is a prayer, really, of complaint to God. The first uh, six verses. And, and that's something interesting to note in the Psalms. That sometimes it, it's really important to notice who the, the writer, the author, is talking to. In the first six verses of the Psalm, he's talking to God. In the last four verses, he's talking to the audience. He's talking to the people who have, well, we'll talk about the setting after we, we read the Psalm together. Psalm 64. Again, the first part is a prayer, a prayer of complaint. It says, hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemies. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from that noisy crowd of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords. They aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They shoot at him suddenly without fear. 
They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding their snares. They say, who will see them? They plot injustice and say, we've we've devised a perfect plan. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning, are cunning. But then David says and wants his people to sing uh, a different tune, a different thought, a different uh, refrain, and that is, uh, but God will shoot them with arrows. Suddenly they will be struck down. He will turn their own tongues against them and bring them to ruin. All, man, all who see them will shake their heads in scorn. All mankind will fear. They will proclaim the works of God and talk about and ponder what he has done. So let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart praise him. Let's pray again together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its power. You have placed in your word, in in the written word, and in the word who is alive, Jesus himself, um, the power to change us, to convict us, to confront us, and and, uh, to train us in righteousness, that we might be fully equipped for every good work. And I pray this morning again you'd take your word and, and, and uh, blend it into our souls that we would uh, be changed by it again and, and take it with us and, and uh, it would affect uh, how we live today and, and how we think about the world and we live in and how we react to the things that go on around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this series of psalms, psalm, I haven't really figured it entirely, but I think going back to Psalm 61 through maybe 65, 7, 8, were written, and that's not important. What's important is this series right here were written during the time of Absalom's rebellion. So David has been the king for a number of years. His family has grown, and his son Absalom has decided through a number of uh, failings on David's part and, and uh, in the family as well, Absalom has decided to do, it, do away with dad and become king himself. And in the process, Absalom has ingratiated himself, uh, popularized himself, brought him to a, a point of uh, gathering people around him of, in leadership, of influence, of power, and of wealth, and... Uh, He's, he's gone down to Hebron, where, where David was originally crowned king, and gathered these people together, and then uh, decided they're going to go and attack Jerusalem and do away with dad. And David hears about it, and he gathers a few people around him that are still loyal, and they head off towards the Jordan and across the Jordan to safety until they can figure out what to do. And during that time, David writes these songs, songs to remind him of who God is, to express to those he's with what God, what he thinks God is doing, what he knows God will do, and, and also just to encourage the people with him. We looked at Psalm 62 where he, he says to his, uh, his followers, my, my soul has found, finds rest in God alone. But 
the next song is Psalm 63, and he, he cries out to God and said, God, you are my God. I'm, I seek you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And they're out there fleeing from, from Absalom and his men. But we come to Psalm 64, and it's really obvious, you know, the things that are on David's heart here, because the people that he's trusted, the people that he has been with, that have been in leadership with him, have turned against him. Many of them have. And he cries out uh, to God with a complaint with a, a valid complaint because people that were supposed to be loyal have become very disloyal and are actually sided with those who want to kill him. And of course, though, all those people that are with David are also, their lives are forfeit as well because they have taken that side. And so uh, if indeed Absalom is, is successful and, and becomes the next king, then not only David but those who are with him their lives will probably be forfeited. And so he, he writes this song, he, he sings this prayer, and, and then reminds those with him of, of God's uh, promises and that they can trust God through this difficult time. In this psalm, as it begins, and, and he expresses his complaints, his concerns, his valid uh, recognition of the evil of those who have turned against him, uh, this, the account goes back, uh, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, 16, 17, and 18. And uh, you probably know a lot of the story. Absalom, uh, his uh, sister was raped by his other brother, and so he kills his brother. And all this results from David's sin with Bathsheba because there's such disunity and dysfunction in the family. So David carries a bunch of guilt through this as well. And yet... <clears throat> um, you know, you're not responsible for other uh, people's sins. Uh, you are responsible before God to, to repent, to believe, and to trust God and to remain faithful. Absalom chose a different path, and many others followed him. One of the outstanding characters in this rebellion of Absalom is a guy named Ahithophel. And he was David's main counselor. It was said of Ahithophel that people took his advice as, as if they were listening to God himself. He was that sharp. He was that wise. He was that much of a, hmm, an understander of the times and, and what went on. And, and so he counsels as David is fleeing Jerusalem and Absalom is coming in. He counsels Absalom. It's just a despicable thing. He says, if you want to really make sure that everybody is on your side and know the lines are clearly drawn, he says, I want you to put a tent on top of the building and sleep with some of David's wives. And everybody will know now that you have become a stench in your father's nostrils. And there will be no doubt about the, 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 the direction we're headed. And so he does that. And then Ahithophel says this, Now gather your chosen 12,000 men and go after David right now and kill him before he can get away. And that was actually, now let's take this in the right way, that was good advice. That was the right uh, thing to do if you're Absalom. And that's what Ahithophel said to do. David, as he was fleeing, he heard that his counselor, his friend Ahithophel had turned against him, and he prayed a simple prayer. He said, God, I pray that Ahithophel's advice will be turned to foolishness. And, uh, and there was this other guy. Um, remind me of his name here. It's a funny name. 
Hushai, there you go. Thank you. And turn back there. And, and he's, he wants to go with David. He's an old guy. And David says, no, go back and, and, and maybe you can frustrate Ahithophel's advice. So Ahithophel makes this advice. Go after David right now. And Hushai comes in and they says, well, are you with us or against us? He says, oh, you know, whoever chooses to be the king, that's whose I will be. And so Ahithophel, or, uh, Absalom says, so what do you think we should do? Because you've been around a lot, too, and you're pretty smart and old and wise. And Hushai says, oh, no, Ahithophel's advice is not good. And everybody's like, what? Who would even say that? He says, yeah, I think what you should do is gather all Israel and go after David with everybody, the whole army, not just 12,000 chosen men. And then wherever he is, even if he hides in one of the big cities, we will go and we'll put ropes around it and drag it down to the valley. We'll, and, and it appeals to Absalom's pride. And everybody goes, oh, that's, that's pretty good advice. That's better than Hithophel's advice. And it wasn't. But it was the reason David was able to get away. Interesting little aside that I didn't know until just a couple of years ago. And this is kind of just an extra thing to, to put in the back of your mind. Why would someone like Ahithophel, who had been with David presumably for many years as a counselor and, and friend, why would he turn against David and become so determined to see his destruction? And uh, actually, one of our, our Sunday school teachers over at our church dug this out for me, and I'd never heard it before, but Ahithophel was actually... Bathsheba's grandfather. You think maybe there was a little bit of deep down hidden anger there or something that had been hidden for years and finally it was a chance to pay back sort of maybe. I don't know. That, that was really interesting to find that out. But then as you think about all those things, think about David's prayer here as his complaint. Hear me, O God, as I voice my complaint. And isn't that interesting that many times the Psalms begin with that phrase, Hear me, God. God, listen to me. That's, that's uh, something that I've wondered about a lot. Hear me, O God. Hear me as I voice my complaint. You know, God has a complaint department, and it's him. It's nobody else. And it's okay to go to God and say, God, I'm, this is not right. Something's wrong here. And it may be with me. And it may be with others. It's okay to God to go to God and complain. He can handle that. But we have to be careful. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Hide me from this conspiracy of the wicked from that noisy crowd of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords. They aim their words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent man. They, they encourage each other in evil plans. They plot injustice. And David is, is crying out in this song uh, that people would recognize that there are times when it's valid to say, God, things are not right. Surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. <laughs> Sounds like politics as usual. 
Sounds like political ads over the last few months. Uh, a great, great preacher said recently, and I couldn't find the exact quote, but it had to do the effect that, had to do the effect that the, the greatest fool are those who believe that politicians can answer, can, can solve problems. <clears throat> As I said, the first six verses of this psalm are this complaint that David has. But the last four are our confidence and, and are intended for the people to sing, to have embedded in their, their minds, not just the, the recognition of evil, but also the, the recognition that God is going to work things out. Even in the midst of their, their, they haven't seen it yet. They're still fleeing for their lives. They're out in the wilderness, the other side of the Jordan. They're hoping to find refuge but they're singing a song that David's written that uh, assures them of confidence in God. Now, they didn't know how. They didn't know when. They didn't know what God was going to use to bring about um, this reversal, his turning their own tongues against them. But, but we have seen it. We read the story and we saw that the, the wise, the right advice of Ahithophel was turned against him. Um, and David sang that and prayed that and was assured of that and assured his people of that. The phrase is there, all mankind will fear, they will proclaim the works of God and ponder what he has done. It's one thing to be in the midst of struggle and trial and, and it's another thing to be beyond it and be able to look back, but in the midst of it to be able to say, God's got this. And he's going to work it out, even though I don't know how, but he will, because that's who he is. And he's made promises that cannot be uh, overthrown by the schemes of men. So a couple of items or thoughts that just to, to leave us with here as we maybe go on to another part of Scripture. First of all, it's okay to complain. Don't feel like you can't go to God and say, God, this is wrong. I'm, I, I don't like this. But it's really important to, the, to do that carefully. Remember the children of Israel. There was consequences when they were complaining to God about what he was doing. And David isn't complaining about what God's doing. He's complaining about what people are doing that's wrong and, and very obviously so. So we need to be, have some, some wisdom when we, think, when we think about this idea of, of complaining and we need to be careful. Be careful that our complaints um, are not about God and what he's doing. Um, examine our, our, our concerns. One of my favorite little books of the Bible was this little prophet Habakkuk. If you know that story there, he said, God, this nation is falling to pieces. Why don't you do something? God said, okay. I'm going to send the Babylonians. They're going to wipe you out. And Habakkuk says, no, no, wait. Isn't there something else that might work better besides destruction? So we have to be careful in that. And then secondly, uh, from this psalm, uh, uh, a principle that I would take is know this. And whether it works out in the experience of, of our lives today or in the next few months, but know this. And, and this is nothing new, but every knee will bow, 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And whether we go through difficult times and suffer, um, but there is the other side, and it's guaranteed. And there is no doubt of where God is taking us. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now I want to take you to uh, just consider a couple other famous biblical complainers. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 11 and 12 is uh, an interesting one. You know, Jeremiah had lots to complain about too. He was in the middle of the, the downfall of Jerusalem, of his nation. He writes in several places, my eyes overflow with tears. I, I can't cry anymore from what I see going on around me. And not only was his nation being destroyed and uh, about to be taken into captivity, but um, people that he trusted, his own family, uh, didn't like his message of, of repentance and of turning and, and even of surrender to those who were about to destroy his nation. And so they were out to, to kill him. And in, in Jeremiah chapter 11, he writes... Um, Sorry, verse 18, he says, The Lord revealed their plot to me. I knew it, for at that time he showed me they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit and cut, cut him off from the land of the living. And in chapter 12, Jeremiah complains to God. He says, God, <clears throat> you are always righteous. Oh, Lord, when I bring a case to you, but I would speak to you about your justice. And he is actually complaining about what God's doing or allowing to happen. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You've planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. And God answers Jeremiah. He answers his complaint in verse 5. And he says to him, you think this is bad? It could get worse. He says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. God says to us when we maybe think things are bad and, and we cry out to God and say, God, these things are terrible. You know, things could get a lot worse. Maybe instead of thinking about how bad things are, maybe you think about the fact that I'm, I'm training you. I want you to learn to be strong when things are not good. Because you live in a broken world. Why do you expect that things wouldn't break until the king comes and sets them right? And then Job. Do you love Job? To me, he's one of my favorite, favorite people in the Bible. God says of him to Satan, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? He is an upright and blameless man. I have no one like him. And, and then you know what happens. But God instigates the whole uh, circumstances of Job's suffering and allows Satan to... to uh, Give him many valid reasons to complain. And he does. Complains loud and long and eloquently. But 
The thing I like about Job, there's two things I like about Job. Maybe there's more. First of all, if you, you notice this in Job, he's got three guys that come and they counsel him and another guy later. They all talk about God, but only Job talks to God. And he complains to God. It's one thing to, to talk about what God's doing or we don't like, but when we bring our complaint to God and actually say, God, why are you doing? Why are you allowing? What is going on? And, and interestingly enough, you know, Satan has nothing to do with this from this point on. It's all about Job and God and the conversation, hashing things out. And in the process, Job makes... I, <clears throat> well, I could go on for a long time here. <laughs> Some people wonder about that guy at the last, Elihu. He's the guy I want to be. I don't want to be Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar because they're the ones that come and just talk about God and, and really blame Job for causing it all because he's probably a sinner. But, and I don't want to be Job if I could choose because I really don't choose to suffer. But Elihu is the one who brings God into the situation. He's like a John the Baptist and he introduces God. He brings him on the scene. And at the end of his talk, God shows up and doesn't answer any Job's questions. Just asks him a lot of questions. But Job discovers some really important things through the process of suffering. So let me say this about that. I do not, I would not, I cannot uh, choose to suffer. It seems to come naturally. But Job learned some things in his suffering. And do you want to learn some things about God? It's like, I want to learn things about God, but I don't want to suffer. They go hand in hand. Job learned, and let me, let me say, read you some of the things he learned. First of all, he learned that he needed someone. And he cried out to God and he said, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, between me and God to lay his hand on both of us, someone to remove God's rod from me. If only there was someone. A few conversations later, Job says, <clears throat> even now I know that my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. And then that great, great announcement in chapter 19 of Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you want to grow in your Christian experience? You know, it's hard to pray for suffering, but it will come. Paul said to Timothy in his last letter, if anyone, everyone in fact, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but you, man of God, keep your head in all situations. And then finally, when we think about this whole idea of, of complaining, of suffering, I hope that your mind goes quickly to, to Christ himself. 
What do you think these, these words of David meant to Jesus as he was falsely accused, as he was plotted against, as he was lied about, as the words uh, of his adversaries were like pointed spears and arrows, as they, they, the cunning um, hearts of men sought to destroy the Messiah. And yet, what is, the, what is the testimony of Christ? That's one, one advantage I have to the, uh, the red-letter edition of the Bible. <laughs> you come to the Gospels and you see Jesus in those last moments and there's very few red letters. Because like a, a sheep before its shears is silent, so he didn't complain. Because he knew what he was there for. He was there to suffer. Someone said recently, uh, if they complain about why do good things happen to bad people, or why do bad things happen to good people, there you go. And, and this person said, no, bad things don't happen to good people. In fact, it only happened once, and he volunteered. Peter writes in... <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And now is seated at the right hand of God. I'll leave you with a poem that uh, I've loved. Uh, one of my favorite musicians, Phil Keggy, put this poem uh, to music many years ago. I think I first heard it back in the 70s. That's a long time ago. Um, as I said, music has been a really big part of my life, and uh, it's one of the ways that God really touches me deeply, not just to hear words, but to hear music and uh, this old poem is called, and perhaps you've, you've heard it before, it's called Disappointment, His Appointment. Heard that one? It goes like this. Disappointment, His Appointment. Change one letter. Then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. His appointment must be blessing, though it may come in disguise, for the end from the beginning open to His wisdom lies. Disappointment, his appointment. Whose? The Lord, who loves me best, understands and knows me fully, who my faith and love would test. For like loving earthly parent, he rejoices when he knows that his child accepts unquestioned all that from his wisdom flows. Disappointment, his appointment. No good thing will he withhold. From denials off we gather treasures of his love untold. Well, he knows each broken purpose leads to fuller, deeper trust. And the, the end of all his dealings proves our God is wise and just. Disappointment, his appointment. Lord, I take it then as such. Like the clay in hands of potter, yielding wholly to thy touch. 
All my life's plan is thy molding, not one single choice be mine. Let me answer, unrepining, Father, not my will, but thine. Complaining, it's okay, but be careful and know that God is at work. Even when this broken world beats you up, complain to God, but trust his wise plan is being worked out and trust him more. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for just looking back over my life, uh, seeing your uh, provision through difficult times. There were times, I'm sure each of us could say, when we wept and were broken and thought uh, we could see no way through. We perhaps experienced the, the betrayal of friends, perhaps the, the brokenness of uh, marriages or family dysfunction, which is so painful. Perhaps business experiences that have left, left us uh, wondering where our next uh, paycheck or meal was coming from. And yet, we can look back and time again, and maybe some of us right now can look back and we're not sure what's coming next. But we have experienced your faithfulness and your provision and your promises coming true. So even in the, the privilege of giving us, of coming to you with our, our concerns and our complaints, uh, help us to be, uh, first of all, careful that we not accuse you um, though men will always let us down. But help us to believe and to see and know that, that you are working all things, as you said, for the good of those who love you, those who have been called according to your purpose. And as much as we would like to grow in our faith, help us to understand that it's not an easy thing. And to accept that which comes our way with confidence in you and then courage to go forward in faith. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.